welcome to Socrates in the city. That, traditionally, that's when we applaud. Yeah. Not, not tonight, just traditionally. Um, it's most of you who are, actually, how many of you have never been to Socrates in the city before? It's your first time. Would you raise your hands? Wow, that's a, that's a nice group. Very nice. I could say anything to those people now, and they wouldn't know. Um, okay, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, it's very rare uh, for us to have a Socrates event on a Friday night. I, I think you know that. Uh, and for those of you watching on video um, who couldn't make it because, you know, you had to zip off to your fancy weekend homes, uh, let me simply say on behalf of the rest of us who are here, we, we don't like you. Um, <laughs> We never say that to your face, you understand, uh, but since you're not here, let me, let me say again that on behalf of the rest of us who are here, uh, who have to suffer here in the city now on weekends, in the city run now by a communist, um, we have to... No, no, no. I'm, you don't understand. I'm against communism. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that privately. Um, but yes, for those of us who have to remain here and, you know, come to this crummy old club um, and listen to some, you know, author, uh, uh, you know, tell us, you know, how we could be happier even though we don't have weekend country homes. Um, on behalf of, of these people, uh, my people, um, let me again simply say, we don't like you. Okay, uh, I, I got that off my chest. I feel better. I, I had to say that. A lot of resentment. Um, <clears throat> well, so it's just us chickens in the room, and so, you know, we're not going to stand on ceremony. You want to take your shoes and socks off. Whatever you want to do, the fancy people aren't here to criticize. They're over at, they're in their country homes criticizing each other. Uh, so, um, you know, if you want to run out to the bathroom, switch into your PJs, whatever makes you comfortable, it's just us tonight. It's just us, right? Parents are gone. Um, and yeah, just, just whatever you need to do to get comfortable. If you want to take out your dentures even, I have to say, I've never said that publicly, but so many people have said that uh, the only thing, they loved the evening, but just a set of ill-fitting dentures ruined it for them. And that's, uh, I just want to say tonight, take them out, we don't care. Uh, right. Incidentally, that's why I use DentiGrip or, or PolyGrip, whichever one's going to pay me more to say that. But anyway, I want to tell you a little bit about Hugh Hewitt, who is our guest uh, tonight. Hugh grew up in Warren, Ohio. Uh, he graduated uh, from Harvard cum laude, uh, or con carne, as the case may be. <laughs> I don't know. Either way, it's impressive. He attended the University of Michigan Law School, where he was elected, this is true, to the Order of the Coif, C-O-I-F. He was elected to the Order of the Coif at Michigan Law School. So he is obliged, now you understand, to wear the outlandish wig that he is wearing <laughs> this evening. Obviously, God does not make hair like that. That's cheap synthetic wig, but he's obliged as a member of the Order of the Coif. Uh, Hugh has a storied background. He worked in the Reagan administration. And this is amazing. I didn't know this until today. Uh, he oversaw the construction of the Nixon Library in California and was executive director from the groundbreaking through the dedication and the opening, which makes no sense. So in other words, the moment 
it opened, you're gone, right? So what was there at executive direct, Hugh? I mean, that's like, I'll be executive director of the 2048 Olympics for the next month. Um, I, I, that's amazing. But actually, we joke, but while at the Nixon Library, uh, Hugh did, he, he left his mark, let's put it that way. Uh, he was given the honor of naming a glade of trees on the property, uh, calling them the Rosemary Woods. Very clever. If you don't get that, there is Google, young people. Um, and incidentally, at the center of the Rosemary Woods uh, is a, just a lovely, uh, it's the B.B. Rebozo gazebo. Uh, and that's, he was able, he had the honor of naming those two things at the Nixon Library. You can go there and you can see that that's not true. Um, Hugh is today the host of the nationally syndicated Hugh Hewitt Show every day coast to coast. Uh, he's, also, he's also, if that's not enough, he's also a professor of law at Chapman University Law School, where he teaches constitutional law. Of course, President Obama also taught uh, constitutional law, and you, and you know what that means, right? <laughs> Absolutely nothing. I'm sorry. I'm very bitter tonight. Very bitter. Uh, Hugh, so Hugh teaches law. Uh, he hosts this national daily talk show. He is also a lawyer in private practice, and if that's not enough, he also writes a weekly column for the Washington Examiner, Examiner and townhall.com, and he lectures frequently at colleges and universities across the country. So yes, okay, we get it, Hugh, we are impressed. <laughs> I mean, is that what you want to hear? Is that what you need to hear <laughs> to fill the God-shaped hole in your heart? You know, you clearly very impressively run from achievement to achievement. But when will you realize you're only running from yourself? That's, the que that's my question. Your, your, uh, your achievements are as filthy rags before holy God. I want to just say that to you. You claim to be a Presbyterian, but you don't see that this is all works righteousness, okay? Uh, it's an attempt to climb the ziggurat of accomplishments into heaven. You can't do that, my friend. It won't work. It is Daedalus and Icarus flying to the sun on waxen wings. You will die. I'm sorry. I had to say those things. Uh, may God open your heart to receive them. Uh, on, a, on a much more positive note, tomorrow, tomorrow, what's tomorrow? Tomorrow is Washington's birthday. Most of you knew that, right? I don't like the President's Day thing. I like when it's like Lincoln's birthday, Washington's birthday. Tomorrow is Washington's birthday. Uh, and on an even more positive note, tomorrow, uh-oh, is Hugh Hewitt's birthday. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, we found out, Hugh. We found out, thanks to your ex-friend, Jamie Bush, we found out. Um, so, uh, Ladies and gentlemen, it now falls to us to do something embarrassing. We've never done it before for Socrates in the City speaker. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you're going to do it. We're now going to sing, no, not happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to Hugh. Are you ready? <laughs> Hugh, just, I just love embarrassing my friend. You ready? I, I, I'll start. Happy birthday to you. Ha! Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Hugh. Happy birthday to you. Oh, wow. I just, I couldn't resist. Let's just do that two more times. Let's just do that. Um, 
And actually, as our birthday gift to you tonight, all my questions will be true or false questions. Um, okay, now this is another weird thing before we get up here. I, I didn't know this either. Hugh was a ghostwriter for Richard Nixon post-presidency, correct? Okay. Uh, and I believe Hugh wrote the book Six Crises. Is that right? Actually, no. You wrote three of the six crises. Uh, Pat Buchanan wrote two, Taking the Silver, and B.B. Rebozo making his second appearance in this introduction. He wrote just one crisis, Taking the Bronze. That's, that's very impressive. Uh, I really wanted to bring up six crises tonight. Um, okay, this is true. Hugh has gotten three Emmy Awards for his PBS show, Life and Times, and he conceived of and hosted the 1996 PBS series, Searching for God uh, in America. And I believe you're one of the creators of Jackass. Um, he has been, th this is true, he has been on a zillion TV shows. I could list the only a small amount. He's been on Hardball with Chris Matthews, Larry King Live, The O'Reilly Factor, Today Show, The Colbert Report, and of course, Hee Haw, though... He saw no screen time. Uh, he briefly served as an understudy for junior samples. Okay, this is true. He's married to the fetching Mrs. Hewitt. He calls her on his radio program the fetching Mrs. Hewitt, just to make all these other guys like me look bad, because I don't refer to her as the fetching Mrs. Metaxas. Uh, they have three kids. And here's the irony. He has conducted in his career more than 10 thousand interviews but tonight ha ha it is i who have conducted but a handful who shall conduct this interview uh and we shall soon see how the master of the interview fares on the other side of the great divide ladies and gentlemen please welcome my soon to be perhaps ex-friend hugh hewitt you my friend you might up that's him How are you? After that, I will uh, it, I'll absorb that for a bit. Thank it's, you. It's really your... Don't absorb it. Just wash it off. <laughs> um, you know, I have a rule on my radio show. I don't generally interview comedians. Jeff Foxworthy was an exception, and uh, uh, Tim Conway came in, and uh, uh, many, many times over the years, over 20 years of interviewing, and it always goes the same way. They run over your show. No matter what you intend to talk about, comedians take control of your show, and three hours later, you don't know what happened. The paper's all gone. People are laughing, and nothing's been done. And I, all right. None of my questions have been asked, so right. I'm a little worried about well, this. Well, good thing actually. it's not your show. Yeah. Uh, let, me say, let, me, let me say this. Actually, that is true. You're, you're right about that, but you know what? That, have you noticed that that never happens to Charlie Rose? Charlie Rose has the ability, it's like he's the human wet blanket. <laughs> uh, it's actually true. Everybody comes across like Kofi Annan. <laughs> he, has had, he has had anybody you can think of, they cannot be funny on his show. It's true. South Park creators. So that's a compliment killing. to you, oh, okay. that, that, uh, that, they, that these folks take over your show. Well... <laughs> We see, as you can tell, Hugh and You're I know each other. You're going to have trouble booking Charlie in this it's chair gonna, now. Yeah, it? I don't it's care. It's not going to happen. I'm way over, Charlie. Believe me. It's, 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 we're over. It's over. No, I, uh, I have to say that um, I've been on your show. I've had the joy of being on your show a bunch of times. And um, 
you are great at what you do. So it actually is a weird thing to interview an interviewer because you, uh, you do this every single day. How many years have you been doing this daily show? Uh, daily show began on July 10th, 2000, but before that I did 10 years of five nights a week, half-hour show. So it's only been three hours a day for radio for 14 years, but a decade of television half-hour shows and a few years of weekend radio before that. It's actually more like 25,000, but I didn't want anyone to impeach my number. Well, you, you could have said 24,000. <laughs> wow. Uh, so you round down to, to 10. That's, uh, that's very conservative it's of a good you. margin of error. That's impressive. That's very impressive. Um, I guess uh, I want to talk to you, of course, about your book. I mean, I should say that, you know, Socrates in the City the, comes, uh, for those of you who haven't been here before, it's the idea that Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living, and I thought there's really nothing in New York when we could talk about these kinds of things, the big questions, you know, the meaning of life. And being happy, uh, the very idea that somebody would write a book about that, I want to ask you about that, but it's amazing. But it's really at the heart of the idea of Socrates in the City. Can we think about life and can we uh can we be thoughtful and intentional about life and learn how to live better is there something that we can learn can we do we dare ask the big questions but the question um about happiness the first thing i want to ask you i have four things i want to ask you right away but i can't the first thing i want to ask you is what to you is the difference between happiness and joy because i've heard it said a million times i don't want to be happy i want to have joy but this book is about happiness well, that's a topic one right out of the box. Uh, joy is a state that is not necessarily connected to happiness. Joy can be in the midst of suffering. Joy can be transcendental. Joy can be uh, even in the worst of circumstances. I think it's pretty hard to be happy uh, in Kiev, Mountain Square this week. I, you could be joyful. You could see beyond the result and say, maybe my country will be brought back from the brink of disaster and destruction and have joy at the fact that you're surrounded by courageous people, joy on the ramparts, joy in battle. There is such a thing called battle joy. Uh, I don't know that happiness, though, can ever be achieved under circumstances that awful. So joy, I would, would put it one of the, the seven real virtues. Happiness is an accumulation of um, attitudes and practices that leads you generally content at the end of the day. And it's transitory. Joy is probably less transitory than happiness. So you've thought about this. I'm glad. I'm glad. I thought I could stump you. Um, I have a question for you. you oh, you've got a question yeah, for me? Can I ask a question? Well, let me one. repeat something that I said earlier. Just one. Just one? It's not your show. Okay. Unbelievable. I mean, is it a question? But just one question. I mean, you can ask me a question later. You, do you have to ask it now? Is it something? Yeah, I do. I do. Because so, so many people here have come from far away. Yeah. I mean, there are people here from Denver, and there are people from Philadelphia. You'll never have a talk show host on your talk show. And it's actually... Because he'll take it over. It's a great... He'll take it's, it over. Someone came as a Rose. birthday, and I think it is a great idea for the people who are watching that they ought to look out on the schedule and say, uh, he, he's going to bring someone in, Eric's going to bring someone in who you want to come and see and make a weekend around it. So I think Friday is good. But what's the worst one of these that you've done? I just want to know where the bar is. We're working on it. Okay. <laughs> I was afraid of that. I was hoping that someone had a stroke or they didn't show up or they were drunk or something like that. So. No, um... Actually, it's funny. We've been doing this for 14 years. We've only been doing the interview format. I mean, I did it with Dick Cavett a couple of years, two and a half years ago, but we've... I wouldn't only... say Dick Cavett was bad. No, no, I'm, I'm not... <laughs> okay. I, I, I... Wow. <laughs> um, I don't have time to count to 10, but listen. Now, listen, you. Uh, 
No, no. What I'm saying is I've only been doing the interview thing really for the last, I don't know, eight months or nine months or something like that. So we've been doing this for a while. When you say, what was the worst one? This is no kidding. I have had 30 of them where people have said, without a doubt, this was the best one. So we've had such truly wonderful guests. I'm very, you know, the bar is pretty high for, for, for guests and only because you're a friend, uh, you didn't need to meet that level. Because um, I want to help you, you know, I just want to help you out, man. So, but, um, but it really is amazing how, how many of these have been wonderful. So like the worst one was really good and I can't even, I can't even think, you know. Sorry to hear that. Bad. Right. Actually, I can tell you this. Robbie George was not, I mean, it was, it was not bad, but it was, uh, it was funny because I said to him, this is, I don't know, two or three years ago, I said, we answer the big questions here, right? I mean, how to be happy is one of the nice big questions, but I want to ask the big nasty questions. And we asked, uh, I said, I want to ask, what is marriage? There, we're talking about that these days. So about three years ago, we had Robbie and I talked to him on the phone. I said, Robbie, now here's the format. You know, the speaker speaks for like, you know, uh, 40 minutes. And then we're going to, we didn't do this thing. And Robbie says, well, you know, in order to do this justice, I really need uh, about an hour and, and five minutes minimum, right? And I thought, who thinks like that? <laughs> like, he's got this legal mind that he had to have, you know, it had to be 65 minutes to do the argument justice, right? And, and he spoke, and it was classic Robbie George. It was so brilliant, most people were, were thinking, uh, what? And... Uh, <laughs> And at 65 minutes, he's like, I- I- I've got another, like, 30 minutes of stuff, so we're just going to cut it off there. But it was, it was hilarious. That's the only time that kind of thing has happened because he's just too brilliant for Socrates in the city. I had uh, a bad but, Robbie George story, which I will tell, which goes to the oh, perils yes. of being public. We're all going to do that. We're, we're going to just tell. rag on Robbie George. Uh, I, uh, at the invitation of Jack and, and uh, Pina Templeton, I gave a lecture at the Union League in Philadelphia. This is the first time I've been in this extraordinarily beautiful facility, but I've often been at the Union League in Philadelphia. And uh, Pina and Jack had asked me to come because Jack thought Washington was being ill-served by the emphasis on Lincoln during the period of time of Team of Rivals and the variety of books out there. And Jack asked, would you give a, a speech on Lincoln? And, and Jack is a good friend and he's a great patron of all things American and liberty-loving. So I said, of course I'll do it. Would you do it at the Union League? Well, that's a little bit of a pressure. And so I prepare my work, and it's on, basically on Washington's rectitude. He's a rectitudinous man, and many people forget that's a quality. It's not much in or, or even a word. Or even a word, yeah. <laughs> You're not going to get it in Scrabble. Too many letters. But, so I prepare, and I work hard at this thing, and I approach the podium, and at the last minute, Jack says, by the way, I've invited Robbie George to come up, and he'll be sitting right in front of you. Now, Robbie George has forgot more about Washington in the last week than I had learned over the course of my entire life. It's very intimidating to talk about Washington to one of the great scholars of the founding. And he had all of his Madison Institute people from Princeton there. Witherspoon. Witherspoon uh, uh, Institute people from the Princeton campus. And so I struggled through it. It's very gracious. He's very gracious. But it's clear. I asked him, did you learn anything? The answer was no. (laughs) So that's... yeah. The dangers of lecturing. We're all gnats to yeah. Robbie George. To Robbie George. No, Robbie, he's, a, he's brilliant and a friend, so I can say that. But um, where were we? Uh, I've totally derailed your plan. You good. see, you did it. Yeah, you good. did it. Uh, we were talking about happiness. We were talking about joy. We were talking about the worst Socrates in the city. Uh, that, and by the way, that was, it was great. In fact, it was so good. The Robbie George one was so good that First Things Magazine uh, used the whole transcript and published it in First Things. So, yeah. Well, I'll help you a little bit. Um, The essence of friendship, 
is a, a driver of happiness. And I just That's like one, to, the, the, the title of the book is Seven, give it to us. Seven Gifts. One seven of those gifts is friendship. Gifts. One of the okay. givers is friends. Okay, friendship. How many are here with a friend as opposed to a spouse or a parent? Oh, as opposed to a spouse, yeah, not yeah. a spouse. You don't get the count. Yeah. It's a great thing, and it used to be common that friends would go to events like this. That's why the Lyceum existed. That's why the Chautauqua existed, is that people would go to events like this in pursuit of conversation and uh, an experience that was more than mundane, and it deepened and enlarged their lives, and it enlarged their friendship. And that made for a very special thing. And when I write in friendship, I've got some very good friends here. Uh, Carol Platt-Lebow, put up your hand for a second, Carol, if you would. Carol has been my friend for more than a dozen years. She's my guest host on uh, the Hugh Hewitt Show. Whenever I'm in town and I have to run uptown, Carol comes in from Connecticut and sits there. She also has the extraordinary uh, pedigree of having been the managing editor of the Harvard Law Review the year after President Obama left it laid waste, like much of everything else he touches. Uh-oh. And, and, uh, you know, he's professionally conservative, so you have to put up with it. Right, go so, ahead. Uh, you have to go It's his that. job. It's Even his though job. if you're a liberal... I do it for free. Uh, but, but Carol's one of my good friends, and we spent many, many hours with her husband, Jack, and the fetching Mrs. Hewitt, uh, enjoying each other's company. But way back machine here are Jamie and Sue Bush. And where are Jamie and Sue? Right here. Jamie oh, and Sue and I campaigned in Fall River for Jerry Ford in 1976. That is a forge of fire on which was forged a friendship. We did the Ford campaign in 1976, and, of course, we lost Massachusetts by 20 or 30 points. Lots. And uh, Jamie and Sue and I have been friends since then, and uh, Sam, his son, is my godson, and and, uh, Sarah is here tonight with uh, her husband, Derek, and I'm so glad that you guys could come. Friends make people happy. It's one of the absolute drivers in that you have a friend who's been uh, coming to this with you is a a great testament. You are a provider of opportunity for friendship, and that's a good thing. Actually, no kidding. That's one of the reasons we did this from the beginning. I said one thing that New York in particular does not have, besides, you know, groups where where people can talk about the big, tough questions, uh, is places, venues, where you can just get together. And I thought that's very important, that kind of community. Uh, so that's part of the reason we do this. So I'm, I'm glad that it works out. But, um, okay, so friendship is one. I, I don't remember w- what they are. Can you rattle them yeah, off and yeah, then we'll the go back? Yeah, the seven gifts and the seven givers. Uh, four E's, three G's. Energy, enthusiasm, encouragement, and empathy. Uh, graciousness, good humor, and gratitude. Uh, those are the gifts. The seven contexts in which they can be given are to your spouse, number one, to your children, that's family. Number three, your extended family. Number four, your friends. But before we go into this, I need to ask you a preliminary question. Yeah. The big question that I have is, when I read the book, and I didn't say this tonight, but it's a spectacular book, otherwise I wouldn't have you here. I, I was so impressed, Hugh, that somebody would take on something it's truly daunting as the idea to dare say, I'm going to write a book about how to be happier. Only a fool would do that unless they could actually pull it off. And I was amazed how you pulled it off. I was very impressed. And I had to ask you, how in the world did you come to think of writing the book? What, what led to writing a book like this? Great question. The, um, my political books weren't doing so well for the candidates on whose behalf I wrote them. <laughs> uh, I... I written a political book pretty much every... Would you write a book for Linda McMahon, please? Your favorite... (laughs) 
That is kind of like, it's like rooting, if, if you're my sports team, you're doomed. But, uh, so I wrote a book about Romney in 2008, and I wrote a book about President Obama, which was intended to maybe handicap his re-election. It didn't work. And my publisher said to me, you know, occasionally you will write a book not having to do with politics at all. We'd like one of those. And so I sat down and thought, most people always ask someone like me, as they will ask Eric, as I asked Eric, what is your um, favorite interview? Who, who's really floated your boat? Over many years that happens, and I have different categories and different conversations. I thought I would work backwards from the 10,000 to 20,000 interviews I'd done and reverse engineer the happiest people that I had met to find out what it was that they had in common, the memorable comments that people told me had made their lives satisfactory or full of meaning or otherwise uh, worth doing over. They want to do over. They want to continue doing it. And then to extract from that, plus the literature. There's a lot of literature on happiness. Uh, Arthur Brooks has written a great book on it. Dennis Prager, my friend, although he always, always, always takes every cigar in the room. Dennis Prager is my friend, nevertheless. You should do one of these with Dennis, but you won't get a word in as wise. And so that's where the genesis came. The publisher wanted a book that was not political. I wanted to do a book that would bring together my experiences as an interviewer, and they are, and to do it in the style of a memoir, so that along the way I could exercise that gratitude uh, prospect where you're able to just say, I am very appreciative of these people for that opportunity. For example, Richard Nixon, probably the most pivotal figure in my life outside of uh, my parents and my immediate family, gave me my first job, real job out of college. I'd gone out to West Coast driving my Dodge Dart Sport across the country, past Indiana, which was the furthest I had ever gone before, uh, out to San Clemente and went to work for David Eisenhower in sort of a tryout for a few months, helping him put together a book on his grandfather. Remarkable man, and David's a remarkable guy. And it was a tryout for RN, and then RN brought me over to La Casa Pacifica, and I joined his staff for a couple of years. And when you are at the age of 23 and you spend nearly two years in an almost daily conversation with one of the great figures of American history, love him, leave him, whatever you can't avoid, uh, one of only two men who served five on five national tickets. You have to think about who the other one is, it's FDR. And, and with a story to tell about everything, you learn a lot, and he did that repeatedly. He would adopt a couple of people on his staff at any given time, would be under the age of 25, and then he would act as a Sherpa for your career. So that, um, oh, you need, you're getting done with law school. If you want to go to law school, good, let me know when you're done. I end up on the D.C. Circuit working for Roger Roth. Oh, do you want to go into the Department of Justice? You really don't want to practice law. How many lawyers do we have here? He saved me from the grind of a big firm uh, 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 law experience by going to the Department of Justice with Bill Smith and Ed Meese. Then he got Fred Fielding to hire me to go into the White House Counsel's Office. So he was a Sherpa, a mentor, through all those years. So he was a nice guy. He was a wonderful man. The best boss I have that's, ever had. That's and counterintuitive for most of us. I know. I, John Dean wouldn't agree with me, I don't think. But uh, everyone who worked for Nixon after the fall will agree with you that he was absolutely the best person you could work for. After the fall? After the fall. Is that, do you think that's because he'd been so humbled? Yes. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm certain that when you... At his funeral at the library, there were 50,000 people. It was an extraordinary day in the middle of July in Yorba Linda, California. Normally sunny and 100 degrees. Swirling purple clouds on the cusp of a thunderstorm the whole time. Four presidents came and spoke. And every, even Spiro Agnew came, which was kind of like a mirage. Uh, and... and <laughs> all sorts of people from around the world. And Henry Kissinger said the most interesting thing, that he stood on pinnacles that became precipices. 
So anyone like that who, who lives a life of extraordinary accomplishment and the destructive frenzy of Watergate learns things, which he then put into subsequent books. I worked on The Real War and Leaders, but he wrote a book called In the Arena, which I still recommend to people who are going to the library. Read that because he was fond of quoting Sophocles, you do not know how good the day has been until the night has come. And he had an extraordinary comeback into relevance and into uh, senior status statesman. He would travel the globe. His advice was sought. Uh, his books were well read. And he showed you can come back from pretty much the worst political experience ever. But towards people, especially those who were loyal to him, he was extremely good and loyal. And it was also interesting, a little Nixon riff. You mentioned Bibi Rebozo. Bibi spent a lot of time in San Clemente. And Bibi was a good friend, never, ever abandoned the old man. But over the course of the two years in San Clemente and the year here in the city, he had a uh, townhouse, Midtown, I think it was on 65th. And I moved back to New York, and it broke me in about nine months. It broke me completely. Never been in the city before that. I was living up at uh, Columbia, sublet a, a, an apartment from a law student at Hogan Hall at Columbia. And I thought, i got to get out of the city. I, I left San Clemente, about the best place in the world to live <laughs> when you're 22, and I came to the Upper West Side, and I just got to get out of here, and I went back to Michigan. But he, um, he would have people like Woody Hayes and Bill Walton would come. And Bill Walton came to apologize for the way that he acted towards the presidency um, uh, down to San Clemente. They would all Are come we talking to visit about the Celtic? The, uh, he was, was he a Celtic? He was a UCLA Bruin is what I think of him. Portland Trailblazers, yeah. So Walton was a UCLA Bruin. Thank you. Yeah, but he was an anti-war activist, extreme anti-war activist. So it was interesting to watch people define themselves vis-a-vis Nixon, as many people define themselves vis-a-vis public figures. Right. Many people define yeah. themselves vis-a-vis Nixon. And by the way, I want to ask the sound people, are we losing the sound every time Hugh looks in that direction? Is this going to be tragedy, or are we okay? We're okay? I'll try and turn more like... I just, no, I'm don't. aware of an audience don't. on Forget my right. Forget those people. They knew you were going to be here. There's people over there. I'll tell, if anything important happens, I'll tell you. The Don't people worry. with the pies it's, usually it's, come yeah. from the no, right. No, 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 right, right. Um, okay, but uh, now you, you mentioned, I just, this has nothing to do with anything except I'd never heard this. You said he served in five administrations. FDR, what? Five tickets. What, yeah. Uh, what? FDR was a nominee for vice president in 1920, and then he ran for president four times. Wait, hang on a second. You, you meant 1920. FDR. Right. And then Nixon ran in 1952, 1956, 1960, 1968, and 1972. Got it. Thank you. See, I feel better. Thank you. you. Uh, There are four colleges that have produced presidents and starting quarterbacks in the Super Bowl. You can tell me that later. I'm not really a big football guy. I know. I got you. So I won't try. Yeah. And I also don't care. Um, So I got nothing to prove. Uh, so, all right, so did you tell us why you wrote this book? I, I, I'm not sure, because we got talking about B.B. Rebozo again. Um, it, just stri- it just struck me as very ambitious, because happiness, I mean, it's almost funny. It's the thing everyone in the world wants. And so to write a book about how to be happy. But what stunned me, Hugh, is that when I read the book, I thought, he did it. I mean, if you do half of these things... Uh, it, it's just delightful. So let me just congratulate you on pulling off something I didn't think someone could pull off. And that is a plug for the book. I actually think, um, you know, the world would be a better place if people, like, not just read your book but kind of studied it because it, it was, there's stuff in there that's just, uh, you know. That, now, here, here's my question. Are there people, do you think, 
who really, it's a weird question, who really don't want to be happy. They're sort of in love with, with a kind of sourness, um, and you'd give them the book and they just wouldn't get it. Absolutely. And I... Would you care to point them out? Yeah. <laughs> you... Joe is over here. Joe is my friend from Harvard forever. Now, Joe's very happy. I'm giving him a hard time. But what time. do you think that is? Why do you think uh, the some Eeyore people... problem. And there are people who are Eeyores in our life, for those of you who are Winnie the Pooh aficionados. And uh, I have my granddaughter living with me for a little bit. And so we're into the Winnie Pooh stuff. And she is a uh, uh, extraordinarily uh, smart and happy girl. But Eeyore just bums her out. Because Eeyore moves at a place that is intentionally down. And I do think it's possible to get people to put a little more life in their step and a little more happiness. But the reason to write it, everyone's written this book. This book has been written hundreds of times. The first person who wrote this book was Aristotle in the Ethics. And the Ethics is divided. I'm getting a nod from the head of King's College, so I've got that going for me. Um, oh, he's heard of Aristotle? Congratulations. That's amazing. That's amazing that the president so, of a college has but, heard of but Aristotle. But nobody understands Aristotle anymore unless you have a guide or a teacher who will really walk you through the Ethics. It's a very rich and difficult book. So I am basically dumbing down Aristotle and a number of other people, including Augustine and others, who have been writing about happiness. The framers wrote about happiness. Um, Deepak Chopra writes about happiness badly. Uh, But happiness is, there's a whole shelf of books everywhere. And the trouble comes when people try and invent something new, as opposed to repeating, perhaps more winsomely or with better stories or different hooks, received wisdom, much of which is scriptural, much of which is, uh, uh, is common to a, uh, a Christian uh, or any person of Scripture. These are not impossible things to uh, find anywhere, actually. Generosity is one of the seven practices. And it, it's absolutely true that the most happy people are the generous people that I know, not necessarily with money, but of course, as they say on Stewardship Sunday for every year with time, talent, and treasure. It's another cliche, but cliches are inevitably cemented into the truth of our experience. And, and I, if we lined up everyone in this room, from left to right, from the least generous to the most generous, we would have a good approximation of the happiness curve as well. Okay, here, here's a question. I'm not a sociologist, but this is a sociological question, I think. Um, are happy people, because they're happy, generous? Or, do you see what I'm saying? In other words, yeah. th- chicken and egg? yes. And was, I it would know. seem to me that if you were happy, you would be generous. When you reverse engineer, you never get to that question. I, I, one of the people I write about in the book is Julie Andrews. I've been nervous once, twice. Once when I was being interviewed by Stephen Colbert, and that will make you nervous. You'll be <laughs> sweating bullets, and you don't know what he's going to do. But then when I interviewed Julie Andrews, and I was genuinely scared. On, on the radio? On the radio. Okay, you interviewed yeah. Julie. And how long ago was this? Uh, five years ago. L.A. Oh. Book Festival. And... I was interviewing Mary Poppins and one of the most successful, well-known, extraordinarily accomplished people in the world. And she was great. She was terrific. And then I happened to have heard her give a commencement speech because my son graduated from the University of Colorado just this past year. And Julie Andrews gave the commencement speech. And it was, you know, most commencement speeches, honest to goodness, who remembers them? I had Solzhenitsyn. It was in Russian in the rain. What? what? You, you, know. you graduated in 1978. Yeah. Solzhenitsyn was your speaker. Yeah, we were losing, I remember? cannot believe... Surprised I we mean, didn't have a mass suicide that day. It was the grimmest commencement that is, speech That's ever. one of the greatest speeches ever written. 
Who cares what but the he was wrong. thought of it? No. He was wrong. We he won. Was wrong. He said we were losing. We won. I watched that with Alan Keyes sitting behind the editor of the Harvard Crimson who was smoking dope and drinking a Heineken. And it was sort of right there. It was a, an out-of-body experience with Keyes. Would you, would you the, reprise the speech? Because not everyone here has read it recently. In 1978, <laughs> Solzhenitsyn, it was 25th anniversary last year. They didn't read it. Uh, a world split apart in which he condemned the West. No, wait, wait. There are going to be people here who don't know who Solzhenitsyn is, Okay. That's the kind of a crowd we're working with, okay? So let me say, for the young people here who think it's not Klitschko, it's Solzhenitsyn. Um, Klitschko's a boxer. Uh, Solzhenitsyn was, my goodness, how do you sum him up? The greatest moral voice of the 20th century. The greatest moral voice of the 20th century. I would agree. He well, was maybe a, Bonhoeffer. You wrote Bonhoeffer, but you might have to write a biography a few, of Solzhenitsyn. There's a handful of people here. Yeah, I might. Uh, there's, there's the, I guess I just want to say that Solzhenitsyn was a giant. He was, first of all, not just a giant as a human being, but as a writer. I mean, he wrote the Gulag Archipelago. He lived uh, through the camps. I mean, he was in the Soviet uh, work camps for, what, 20 years? It's horrific. He was a dissident, just a, just a giant. And by God's grace, he got out of the Soviet Union in the 70s and in 1978 gave this speech at Harvard, and it was really like the thundering of an Old Testament prophet. And that's not just because he had the big beard, but uh, he, was, he was like an Old Testament prophet. But so, n- now that we've established who he is, I, t- remind us the gist of, of what he the said. The gist was that the West had declined into uh, silliness, decrepitude, and moral confusion, and that the communists would win. That was his bottom line. Joe was there, it was raining, it was an absolute debtor. You were there. I'm, I'm sorry, sir. Yes, we were there. It was a. Who, it was, was a complete. There? Who was there? Raise your hands if you were. The, you were there. We've got three. Okay. Then wow. we managed to get out of recovery later. It was. <laughs> it was really a downer. But at the same time, uh, his his little novel. How many of you have read One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich? Outside of Scripture, it is the most impactful book on my life. I read it when I was in sixth grade. What? And it absolutely, absolutely changed my life, made me into an anti-communist at the age of 12 or 13. My brother brought it home from college. I read it once. I read it twice. I read it again and again. And it's, it's so riveting. Go home and read. It's a one-day read. It's a, it's a two-hour read, one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich. And it got me interested in Soviet dissident literature, so that Vladimir Bukovsky's... But that adult. doesn't really differentiate you from most sixth graders. So what's the, <laughs> what's the, what's the takeaway for us? What made you different? You know, in, in, in the Catholic schools of the 1960s, they would hand out something called the Red Rules. Uh, not many people will know this, but the Catholic schools of the 1960s were virulently anti-communist. Uh, many of the sisters who taught were children of refugee families and of ethnic uh, Catholic families that had fled Poland or Eastern Europe of some sort, and they brought with them in their sack anti-communism through and through. So uh, Ross Douthat, have you interviewed him for this? I knew, this is not a joke. I knew Ross when he was 12, and he's the kind of a kid who would have read that book at Yeah, he probably 12. did. And you're both weird. <laughs> so uh, in a good way. Uh, but, um, no, I've not. I would love to, actually. Because his book, Bad Religion, uh, extraordinary read about the, the Christian-American culture of the 50s and 60s and how it produced a very secure generation of people 
with rules and norms. The greatest generation put all their kids into great public schools or great parochial schools or great uh, Jewish schools, and they all came out with a moral compass that has been shaken. And I think Solzhenitsyn in 78 was saying, we're just beginning to reap what happens when you shake the foundations in 1968 through 1978 of American moral certainty. And that, the and earthquake... how in like, the world do you take away that he was wrong? Because, because the I Soviet think, Union is no more, and no, we no, no, won. No, 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 that's correct. That's, yes, that's true. But the principles uh, did not evaporate when the Soviet Union, you know, was dismantled. But he, he did not foresee Reagan... He did not believe Reagan was possible, like Whitaker Chambers. You know, Reagan is is not still president, right? That, that, that. So we're on a cycle. That's very so familiar. So I have to say, no, but I mean, I guess the the thing is, a lot of times conservatives, and obviously you're you're a conservative, uh, have this idea that somehow the sunniness of Reagan, um, you know, that we can uh, we can find our way out, and I, and I think that's right. But I think it can also be overstated. It does seem to me that um, despite, uh, you know, moving from, you know, the malaise of 1978 to Morning in America, nonetheless, the, the, the larger arc uh, has fit what, what he described, where we are now. Uh, in other words, when, what you just said about in the, the moral compass uh, of the kids of the greatest generation, right? I mean, wh- where is that now? It seems to me that Solzhenitsyn was right. You remind me of my friend Bob Fry, who said that the Berlin Wall came down because the devil was doing better on this side. Uh, and and the, uh, there is certainly an argument that the moral temperature of the world is more depraved than it was then, uh, greater indifference to the good. Uh, but I mean, greater... let's talk about the West. Forget about the world. I mean, the West... Right? In other words, where we should have transcended that to some extent. On the other hand, the amount of wealth, opportunity. Brian Westbury is a terrific economist, Christian guy, teaches at um, uh, Wheaton when he's not being an economist. He likes to point out that I'm walking around, I have an an iPhone, that I have more computing power than the Apollo uh, uh, machine that put us on the moon, and that the distribution across vast amounts of humankind, of technology that empowers will radically transform and hopefully elevate. And uh, that the opportunity, for example, if you're an evangelical Christian, the opportunity to evangelize is nowhere yeah, but the, ever but the, as great as But the as opportunity right to evangelize pornography is, uh, is equal. In other words, the, this, these are neutral things. If you think about, it's like saying that we can solve the education problem by giving a laptop to every kid. You know that that's going to do nothing. It's like when TV... Suddenly, in the 50s, everybody had a TV, and it's, oh, it's going to be the golden age. We're going to be, you know, watching Shakespeare's plays, and it's just going to be... And we know that that didn't happen. It didn't happen because technology is neutral and because the invisible hand of the market will give us what we want. And if morally we want better, cheaper pornography and drugs, the invisible hand of the market will give us that as opposed to noble things. At least at first. You're absolutely true. At least at first it will, but if that does not satisfy that which does, rise up. I'll give you W's answer. I was doing with W what you were doing with me two summers ago. George W. President. Uh, And we did a dinner for the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a great organization uh, that uh, defends religious liberty in America. And President Bush agreed to be interviewed as a fundraiser. And so I asked him at that fundraiser, are you an optimist? 
And he said, <laughs> I just got back from South Korea. There was a prayer meeting with 60,000 people, went for two hours. Of course I'm an optimist. That's, yeah. that's South Korea. Right, but that's destroy. the point, it's South Korea. Uh, but, but, but destroyed in 19, you know, by 1960, there's nothing left after the war. Okay. It has become the greatest exporter of evangelical fervor, of economic activity. And Japan is the same way, and I'm very optimistic. If you get enough King's College graduates to go to China and work on the culture there, that China can be the new United States, and the United States can have another uh, And the United States will be the center. new China. <laughs> or, or perhaps even the new Cambodia, if we play our cards wrong. Um, I am ultimately an optimist as well. But no, I, I you're just, not. You're oh, like the no, greatest person I've ever met. No, I am. I mean, the reason I'm an optimist is because you know, I've read the book, the book, the Viblios, the Bible, right? And as far as I'm concerned, you know, if you read the book, uh, you have to be an optimist. But I think we can misplace our hope if we think that... I mean, it's sort of like, let's say you were in the Soviet Union in uh, 1923, and you were an optimist. But, you know, 1989 is a long ways away. You know, you people come up to me the suffering in the, in in the last years. two weeks, and they said, you're going to go talk to Eric, Eric McTaxis. That book changed my life, Bonhoeffer, your biography. That book changed my life. That's because no one can really read Bonhoeffer, uh, The Cost of Discipleship, etc., but they can read Bonhoeffer. That book changed my life. And so from that perspective, I'm surprised that you would be a pessimist because I'm I not. assume he was... I, I think even, I just said that I'm not. He was a happy guy even as he went to the gallows. He was no, a no, 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 no. That's, optimistic I, But see, man. that's the point. There's joy in the midst of suffering. So Bonhoeffer in the Gestapo prison had joy. Uh, but that doesn't mean that you know, we're indifferent to the existence of Gestapo prisons, right? But it's, he knew we were winning. He knew we were winning. Um, yes, there's no question that, you know, we, that the, the, the good side wins. But I still think that when somebody like, I mean, look, Solzhenitsyn thundering at Harvard, uh, and I can't believe there's a few people here who really were there because it's a mythic moment. But, you know, Bonhoeffer did the same thing in Germany in the 30s. They thought he was a uh, negative, uh, they thought he was a pessimist because he was saying that what is happening under Hitler, uh, it it really is bad. Don't be fooled, Uh, it's really bad. When you think of something like, you know, the Holocaust, for example, you realize that just because everything works out in the end doesn't mean we shouldn't worry about things like the Holocaust. And so it seems to me that Bonhoeffer was very much, even though he had a secret joy and 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 a secret optimism, let, let's say, not secret, but I mean a deep optimism. Nonetheless, he was the skunk at the garden party for most of the Pollyannas in the German church in the 30s. Let me, let me do an audience participation here for a second. How many of you believe that America at some point in the next 15 years will be back at morning in America time as it was, as 1980 was, or 1981 was to 1978, so shall a period of time in the next five to 10 years be to this present moment? How many believe that? How many don't how many people that? Under, how many people understood that question? <laughs> you got to, I think, can I? I'm, I'm you, a little like, under, this is New York. Would you like the interpretation? Uh, You're the, living in New York. This is the greatest city in the world with the greatest assets in the world. I know your mayor's out of his mind, but it's it nevertheless. No, he, he knows what he's doing. He's a communist. There's a difference. Uh, that's like saying Lenin uh, and Stalin, you know, they were just crazy. No. Uh, but... In all seriousness, uh, I think I'm not one of these people who says that we are not going to go in in the right direction. But I think that 
going in the right direction depends on seeing that we're not going in the right direction and depends on seeing the pathologies that are with us now, that we have to see that and work with it. So I, I don't, that's why I don't think Solzhenitsyn was wrong. Maybe he was wrong temperamentally, that he, you know, he, he, he was saying these things and implying that it's, it's all going to go to heck. But I, I think the points he was making were prescient. We have to disagree. He believed that the Soviet Union was going to endure and the United States would... He was uh, wrong about that, we know. Okay. So that, I, I can't argue with you on that. You know, most of Eastern Europe <laughs> is free today. That's a good thing. Most of Eastern Europe is free today. Yeah. Right. And tell me about Western Europe. Uh, they're free too. And they're free to... To renew. fall apart, to disintegrate. Uh, well, no, I mean, I'm not trying to be merely flippant. Um, it is interesting, though, that when you think, I, I mean, watching the Winter Olympics, I am astounded to see Russian athlete after Russian athlete do something like make the sign of the cross. One of the skaters kissed her cross. I thought, they're Russians. Just a handful of years ago, this was an officially communist nation. So that's what gives me hope. But what's interesting is that it is the East. In other words, the East, which has suffered, when you've suffered, you've got to deal with what's real. But if you've had the uh, advantages of the West, I think that in that case, Solzhenitsyn's right in the sense that you do rot from within because you, you've lost, you know, <clears throat> to quote Rocky, the eye of the tiger. Uh, it's, and, and so that's, that's what worries me. In other words, is that we are, we're so blessed, we're unaware that we're blessed, and so we let our guard down. I mean, okay, we're Americans... not going to disagree on that. I think that someone needs to step up and articulate that great nations have to be great and that lives have to be lived well and that virtue has to be a part of ordinary education. And if you don't do that, you won't be happy and you will not be prosperous. But that's, that's easy to do. It really is. And I think if you see it... Yeah. Mitt did, Romney, did you, did I, was a, that? I was an enormous fan of Mitt Romney. It's easy to do. I was an enormous on. fan of Mitt Romney, and I thought he should be the president, and he had a skill set. I, I've told people I've met three legitimate geniuses. Sorry, Eric, you're not on this list, but you're close. Um, <laughs> Richard Nixon, um, the, uh, the wonderful, that somewhat controversial Chief Justice of the United States, John Roberts, uh, is a genius, and I shared an office with the Chief Justice in the White House for a year, and I never got to do anything because... Anything that was hard, they gave to the chief because he's a walking, do, talking do, genius. Do you agree with, with his take of, on Obamacare? Uh, I did not agree with it, but I understand it now as a work of genius that will ultimately be to the benefit of the country. Oh, yeah. oh, oh there's someone back there who did a wow. who, who did a Homer Simpson on me. Where was Homer Simpson? We, we got a doe. I think it might have been the Oracle of Delphi. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. And, um, and then the okay. third is... The, the third okay. individual is, is uh, Mitt Romney, who had obviously the greatest preparation for and skill set to run the presidency, systematically destroyed by a political machine that grew up in and was nurtured in Chicago politics. And that was a downer. But I also think the consequences of that are their own correction. People know. I mean, I think people know in their hearts what a boneheaded mood that was for us and they're learning it every day. And I think we will be ready to elevate someone who makes the same kind of arguments with the same kind of skill sets. They won't be as good as Romney's. Uh, that, that whole Bain thing was actually a great set of training to be president of the United States. But we'll get a good one. Um, it's funny you bring that up because when you say that's easy to do, I mean, you were just talking about articulating all that kind of stuff. To me, that's the issue is that because we live in a media culture... You can find someone who thinks that way, but we have to find someone who thinks that way and can communicate that 
and we never seem to, to, to do that. I mean, I think you know, George Bush's great failing was his inability to sell things to the American people, uh, and I think that today, um, if, if you can't do that, I mean, I keep thinking who on the Republican side has those abilities, and I don't really see very many people. There are a lot of them. Uh, it will take some time for it to come forward, but I, I will say that, that it will require the crucible of a campaign to identify who's best at that. But there are a lot of people who are, who are thinking and studying about this. And Arthur Brooks, if I can recommend one other author to you, Arthur Brooks, president of the American Enterprise Institute, and uh, another prophet of happiness. I quote Arthur a lot in uh, The Happiest Life. I stole a lot of his stuff, and I attributed it to it, but I took a lot of it. Uh, he did the economist view of it, and in fact, it's in his little sidebar, faith, family, friends, and earned success provide the foundation for happiness. Those, those are the big four. Say that he, again, because that was... Faith, cool. family, friends, and earned success. Not wealth, but earned success. So you can be in any kind of a profession, but if you made your own bones and you've done your own thing and you created for yourself your own niche, your own opportunity, whether it's in uh, education and medicine, whatever it is, it's not seven figures of income, it's earned success. So wealth itself can be a burden. Uh, it, it, wealth can destroy a lot of unhappy, wealthy people. But Arthur believes, and Arthur's 42 years old, devout Catholic guy and a, uh, a total believer in the future. The Pope drives him crazy because he thinks he's got crony capitalism confused with capitalism out of the Argentinian experience, and he's probably right. But he's, he's nevertheless quite optimistic that this country, with its vast resources and pool of talents, can turn on a dime. I'm optimistic because energy is freedom, and we have more energy than anybody ever knew 15 years ago. It's like the great gifting of America is what we've discovered we can do with new technology. So we have the wealth to pay off the deficit. We have the skill sets to build and innovate. We're constantly coming up with stuff. The investment banking community of the city is without peril anywhere in the, in the world. So I'm, I'm, if we just get out of the way, and people will be really ready to get out of the way in another three years. We're going to quote you on that. Um, I'm worried that um, people in America no longer know what it means to be an American. Now, there's to understand what is the free market? What makes it good? What, what are our freedoms? What is religious freedom? I feel like if we don't understand these things, we can get in big trouble. And I do feel that after 40 years of no civics and no, we haven't been taught this in schools, I am I'm concerned. I mean, I think Let me that give you my, our secret weapon. The country's secret weapon is that over the past 12 years, um, more than 2 million American men and women have put on the uniform and gone to war. And they have gone and grappled with truly evil forces. And they are back now in increasing numbers. They're going to change American politics profoundly. Tom Cotton is one of my favorite people. Tom Cotton is 34 years old, congressman for two years, running for senator in Arkansas. I would not be surprised to see him on a national ticket in two more years. Ron DeSantis of uh, Florida. Mike Pompeo of Kansas, combat veterans. Tammy Baldwin, for that matter, combat veteran, Democrat, Wisconsin. This generation is rising up, and they're, they're just beginning to sort of lap into positions of leadership. The most competent, extraordinarily experienced now, decision-making, energized, generally happy, successful people infusing the country with leadership skill sets that could only be taken away from war. It's why the greatest generation did such a good job to this country when they came back from war. Discipline, um, organizational ability, willingness to lead, opportunity to take advantage of being allowed to lead, 
uh, desire for family, desire for stability, and a great love of country. So I think that is, that's a great advantage, and it's course, only beginning did, to show they up. They did raise the so-called boomer generation. Uh, they were a little bit lax when it came to us, and in fact... Um, <laughs> oh, really? Uh, they were. Uh, they, 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 but it's usually our generation that's worse than that. It's not, they didn't spoil the boom, the children of the boomers and the boomers themselves did not uh, tweak the culture badly. It's me as a parent and other people who are parents. If we didn't, our generation weren't the greatest parents in the world because we were risk averse parents. I think this is beginning to to show up in every study that risk averse parents produce children who are not um, uh, great. There's a great new book by Megan McArdle. Uh, the Upside of Failure. That's why I was reading this on the plane last night. I'll be interviewing Megan next week. And most of the studies show that overly protective parenting produces dependent, unhappy children. You've got to let them get out there and touch the stove. You've got to let them get out there and completely fail. That failure is the greatest education you've got going for it. Carol's nodding. She's got the twins. And, and uh, I hope you're nodding. With, you agree with it. Megan McArdle's book is terrific. And uh, I think we're going to course correction. Uh, and that'll be good. All right, then. Um, I think uh, we want to give some folks time for Q&A. Uh, I don't know. Are we prepared to do that? Oh, the microphones are floating in. Um, I want to say that we always end, uh, at, well, today it has to be uh, at 8.15 sharp. So if the question hasn't been asked by 8.15, I'm sorry. You won't have a chance uh, to ask it. We just I, I didn't say this up front, but at Socrates in the City, we always want you to know we're going to end when we say we're going to end so that you don't feel have to, to sneak out. Um, but if anybody has any questions about happiness, Solzhenitsyn, uh, whatever it is, um, I'll, I'll continue to ask questions until somebody comes up. But I just want to give people a, maybe the person who said dough uh, <laughs> perhaps wants to, uh, wants to articulate it. And uh, all right. Well, so we have that one mic. Do we, do we have another mic for the other side? Okay, it's coming up. So anyway, if you want to ask a question, as long as you know. Um, I, I want to get back to your, to your book, obviously. Um, I still think it was ambitious of you. What, what, was it just a, 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 did it seem like a fun project to write about this? Or did, is this, I guess my question is, was this something that was percolating over the years that you might write about this? Yes, and I also made a habit uh, in broadcast for 22 years of never mentioning my children on air uh, until they were out of the house. I did not want my children to be burdened with their father's reputation for politics or edginess or humor or athleticism. So I just, I left them out of the conversation. And, uh, and at, but that meant I left a lot of stories out of the conversation uh, on, on air that I couldn't share. I would refer to the fetching Mrs. Hewitt, but it's a discussion among broadcast professionals how much you involve your children in that life because it can be quite searing on them and not particularly healthy to be a public person's child. So when I wrote the book, I made notes of what I wanted them to know about the career that I might not have told them. So I was always going to do a private memoir, but in that private memoir evolved into a... Um, a collection of what I would like them to take away from what I would like them to model themselves on. I wrote a book called In But Not Of in 1998, uh, a guide to Christian ambition and the desire to influence the world. And this is really its successor volume. That book, probably the most successful book I've written, 
uh, continues to have a surprising effect on college students. It's written for college students. In but not In of. but not of. And I would always be approached, I want to do what you do, which is like, I used to be asked, what do you want to do when you grow up? I wanted to be George Will. I always thought George Will had the best job. He still got it, by the way, so he won't move on. It makes me angry. But Charles Crotheimer, George Will, public intellectuals, I think, have the best job. Um, all upside, no downside. People forget when you're wrong. And uh, the, it's true, they don't. You could predict anything, and they don't care. Uh, the, the collection of, of stories is intended as much for them as for the general audience about being as you, gracious. Your kids, you mean? As your My kids? kids. Yeah. Being gracious to everyone. And, uh, for example, we've got camera operators here who are doing an amazing job. And we've got uh, all the King's College volunteers who are in the back of the room and are very sophisticated in moving people through. We've got people serving in the back here who have been taking good care. Obviously, it's the, a club like this has got their choice of people who staff it and take care of you. If Americans generally adopted an attitude of encouragement and gratitude towards those who are accompanying them on a daily basis everybody would be better off. And I practiced this in, two, in TV studios because it was modeled to me by, among others, the craziest Hollywood person ever, Ed Asner. And Ed Asner would do pledge with me for PBS. Uh, Ed gave me a wedgie on air live during PBS. <laughs> you know, uh, I don't think, I don't know that anybody here would think of Ed Asner as particularly crazy. <laughs> I mean, we don't know him. Oh, the way oh you it's know politics. Him. Ed is to the left of Sean Penn. He makes Sean Penn look like a Romney voter, all right? So that's, that's how far to the left Ed is. And he's a wonderful guy. He's a terrific guy. But so all, all, all lefties, like, give you wedgies on the air? Is well, no, he's just, that's, he, okay. he's a but funny he's, guy. It sounds like he's crazy. But he made a way. point. I watched him work the room. He's a pro. He's a broadcast pro. He's been doing television forever and, and was in television. He shouldn't be working now, right? But Ed was in television before Participants in television shows got a cut of the replay of the syndication rights. So Ed has to work. It, you know, he didn't get every time you see Jerry Seinfeld people make money every time, but that's post the new agreement. So Ed would come into a broadcast studio and it would be pledge, and so it's, it's dismal. Pledge is the worst thing you ever have to do. But he loved PBS because it's populated by lefties, except for me. And I always did pledge with him because it was a nice combo left and right. And he would walk around and he would identify from the makeup artist to the camera person through the sound person, generous, gracious, always interested, just an absolute pro. Now, I know a lot of people in the business are not that way. Well, you're not that way, Eric, but I'll, I, I, I... I'm just not that way to you. Okay, that's it. And so I, I just think that writing that down and communicating that, uh, not only to my kids, but to readers increases the likelihood of happiness in every yeah. single life. Yeah. Now, why do you think Ed Asner's that way? I mean... You know, I don't know that. He, uh, Richard Dreyfus is that way. The only time I ever ran out of tape in an interview, uh, we took three hours of tape to an interview with Richard Dreyfus, and I ran out of tape. Because Dreyfus is, is as far to the left as Ed Asner, and he would watch my television show, and he came ready to roll. He wanted to rock and roll. And he sat down. It was during the Mr. Holland's opus, uh, opus and uh, we were going to do about a 10, 15-minute hit, and we talked for three hours. His mother was Eugene Debs' secretary, and he is an autodidact. And so he has learned and read and taught himself everything, wrongly, I might add, but he taught himself everything, <laughs> and, and came prepared to argue in the way that is actually useful, a dialectic and a, and a conversation. But along the way, the most gracious person you could possibly want to talk about is, is Richard Dreyfus. And uh, he's also had a lot of suffering in his life. 
in and out of recovery, which he talks about candidly. A lot of success, a lot of lost money, a lot of second chances, a lot of people to be grateful to. One of the seven gifts is the gift of gratitude, the opportunity to recognize people. So I, I, I don't think it's particularly ideological. I think it, it, it's one of those uh, habits of life. Maybe his mother was a saint, too. You don't, well, let me you ask you know. about that. Were your parents, did they model this? Yeah, my, my parents were pillars of the Midwestern community. My dad was a Presbyterian, but he ran the Catholic Hospital Board. My mom was a volunteer nurse. You know, the, the, the Middle West, uh, I, I have to say, does produce a particular cast of Americans who are uh, very unassuming. Very, that's why Ohio has the most presidents. Virginia doesn't count because they were a British colony for a while. And so, uh, you know, Madison, Washington, Monroe, they weren't born on American soil. They were born on British soil. So Ohio has produced the most presidents. And I think Ohio and that whole ethic does produce a different culture. One of the reasons why I think John Kasich and Scott Walker may be very formidable candidates in the next election cycle is that they represent that lost sort of Midwestern vibe. Right. Uh, no, I agree. I agree. I'm just thinking about that. It's, there's going to be a lot of people in this uh, field of candidates. It's going to be very interesting. You know, this has never happened at Socrates in the City where somebody... Did. Finally, George Saras. Thank you, George. Thank you. Um, it was actually very encouraging to hear your optimism. We hear so much pessimism right now. Um, it does seem to me that evil is basically self-destructive, so any one form of evil will eventually destroy itself. I think that really came through with the Soviet Union. Um, could you just share a little bit more about why you're optimistic? Because that was just so encouraging. Uh, when I am, uh, I read a lot of history, and I assign my con law students Churchill's history of the English-speaking people, and the cycles of the English-speaking people are pretty. Augustine, uh, Saint Augustine, thought we were all going to hell in a handbasket, and it was going to be over. And he wrote basically the last testament of the West, and we recovered. It took 600 years, and I'd rather not go that long. Uh, every fantasy novel that you've ever... Tolkien, if you remember, that's just one of an epic in his mind of cycles of up and down good and evil. And it always reconstitutes itself. It, you, you always lose and then you win. And I would guess if Churchill would carry on in 1939... I just finished reading the third volume of the Manchester biography uh, by Paul Reed is his name. He finished it for Bill Manchester, the... the uh, uh, three magnificent volumes, and I just listened to it. And Churchill carried on when there was absolutely no reason, when things were much grimmer than now, as did your guy, Bonhoeffer. The examples of people carrying on, I just think, fill me up with, even on the worst days, I, can't, I cannot believe this country won't turn it around again. I mean, we may be in for some bad days. This city's had the worst day, but there may be more of those coming. But that doesn't mean it, we won't bring it back. I have to go over here. Yes. So, on your view, is happiness a byproduct or the goal? Happiness is a byproduct. Happiness is a uh, 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 the end result of certain practices, and I the, the practices I talk about, and there may be more. They're not exclusive. It's the the ones, the seven that I focused on. That if you do them, it's sort of like gym work. You'll end up in good shape, or marathon running. You'll end up with a low blood pressure. You will end up with a very resting pulse that is admirable and general good health. If you run three to five miles a week, there's a new book out called Younger Next Year, which is sweeping everywhere. Three to five 40, miles a week? Uh, a day. A day. Me, a day. Right. 45 minutes of uh, elevated heart rate a day makes you, that's basically the whole book, and it's 
not a secret, but if you do certain things, you end up in a certain way. And if you do the practices of happiness, you end up happy. Yes, sir. Morning glory. Evening grace. Thank you, sir. Okay. That's, uh, that's used, my slogan. That's the uh, radio audience here. Um, I'm with Eric on this point that we have lost the demographics, uh, just as the FDR generation has gone on to uh, their reward. The Reagan generation will be going off to their reward in the next 10, 20 years. And the generation that replaces that will be composed of people who did not know Reagan. And as a consequence, um, I think the values that we think are going to right the ship uh, after this ordeal won't be there. And they'll only know uh, the, the entitlement and democratic way of life. But you know what's counterintuitive then, or, or not ca- counterfactual, is that the person who energizes young people the most on the center-right is Rand Paul. Now, Rand Paul is not my guy. Uh, I admire him greatly, but he's, he's not sufficiently internationalist from my point of view. But he turns out young people in ways that I missed. Well, so did his dad. His dad did too. And what that tells me is that there's a generation out there who want very much freedom, that it's a freedom-loving generation. And what's interesting, it's a pro-life generation. Now, uh, older evangelicals fret that younger evangelicals do not much care about same-sex marriage. And that's, in fact, statistically true. But they care deeply about life and, 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 and the issue of protecting the unborn. And so that's a, that's a sea change from when I was coming out of college. And I think they're also, um, uh, Christian Union at the Ivy Leagues is exploding uh, as it goes on from campus to campus. We're going to meet today with the, the leader of that, but he got the flu, and I'm glad he didn't come. He was but, supposed to be here tonight, yeah. Matt, Matt Bennett. Matt yeah. Bennett. Christian Union is really an amazing organization and a great reason for hope. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. fascinated by this story because I do not know how they're going to pull that off, but they are They're doing pulling it. it off. What's that? They're pulling it off. And it's, it's enormous it's, 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 numbers. Yeah. So I'm, I think this generation is going to learn from Reagan in the way that we learned about Churchill. All right? None of us have a personal experience of Churchill. All of us know of uh, how he operated, and, and more great books are coming. So returning, returning to Eric's first question, um, you said that happiness is more of a byproduct as opposed to joy. So I'm curious why you chose to focus on happiness as opposed to joy. It's easier to teach happiness than it is joy. By the way, military spouse who I met earlier, thank you for your service. Um, the, uh, joy is above my pay grade. Joy is C.S. Lewis land. Joy is, um, you, you have to be a theologian, you have to be a scholar to really, to get that. Happiness is a very practical thing. It's a, it's a seven habits of highly effective people well, there are seven habits of very happy people. And I, I don't write a, it's like, don't fight heavyweight if you're a lightweight. And uh, don't, don't go up in class, don't go down in class. I, I'm good for happy. When would, when would a heavyweight have read uh, the Ivan Denisovus book? <laughs> that's, that's an easy book. Like probably it, it, fourth grade, right? It, it is or an third. easy book. Um, it's, a, it's an easy book. Uh, the, the only thing is that before we get to this next question, um, but there is a moral component in the kind of happiness that you're writing about. As I read your book, it struck me that it is all um, a moral issue, that, that generosity. I mean, you come across in the book as tremendously generous. You are. You're a very generous person in the way that you write the book, referring to friends. I, you even refer to me at some point 
uh, in there, there's, there you, you have a generous spirit. And so it's not, I mean, we have to, okay, we're not, maybe we're not talking about joy, but we're not talking about happiness, meaning I won the lottery kind of happiness. No. It's something um, deeper, deeper than that. Maybe we need another word for the other kind of happiness. I don't know. Well, there is, Aristotle's got lots of words. Uh, that's why it is, I just stick with happiness because it, it is a uh, common phrase that, that implies there's lower forms of happiness, higher forms of happiness. But it's a, um, a common understanding that there's a state of mind of contentment mm. and satisfaction that is happy. But, I mean, the, ro- the root of happiness, right, it comes from where we get, you know, something to happen or happenstance, right? In other words, it's, I have no so- idea. it's sort of like saying... Uh, but I'm saying it's, it's like saying happy really, etymologically, the root means it's like saying you're lucky, right? Oh, I didn't and know so that. the real meaning of it, as we take it, is, is different from the, the root meaning. The root meaning is that you've been lucky. You've had great happen, happens, happenings in your life uh, by happenstance. You know, you're, you know, on this hap, H-A-P, in the Shakespearean sense, it, it's on this occasion. So you've had a, a life of wonderful occasions, so you are happy. Uh, which is very different from the kind of happiness you're writing about. I just want to say that next. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Eric, uh, getting back to the whole Russian thing, uh, you mentioned during the Olympics the uh, Russian athletes who are kissing crosses and crossing themselves and basically showing their loyalty to the, uh, to the Orthodox Church, which is what Putin is doing also. And... I remember in 1985, when I covered the first Reagan-Gorbachev meeting in Geneva, the Russian Orthodox Church was all over the place uh, with the pacifists, with the uh, anti-nuclear people, with the anti-Reagan people, encouraging them. And um, as I see it, the Russian Orthodox Church is the servant of the Russian state. And they, I hope that they will find true religion and find happiness and, and find virtue. But history seems to show that they don't, or they don't do it very often. No, I, Except I have for to people say, like Solzhenitsyn. You're, you're, you're right. Forgive me, uh, Hugh, for answering this question, but I just want to say that I've thought about that a lot, because that's the story of Bonhoeffer, right? That... Clearly, uh, because human beings are sinful, uh, we are by nature, by our fallen nature, tribal, right? We're tribalists, and so we want to make the church like the church is our group, and we hate the people outside our group, which is the antithesis of true Christianity, of course. And you're exactly right that, uh, that organizations like the Russian Orthodox Church or any national church in particular has a great temptation to go in that direction. Being raised Greek Orthodox, you see it all the time. Confusing being part of that ethnic group with being a member of that church. The the two have nothing to do with each other. And I think you're absolutely right about that. Uh, And I've I've been thinking about that. It still struck me as extraordinary uh, uh, that there is this rising up a little bit in Russia. But you're you're exactly right. Uh, We shouldn't confuse the two. So thank you for clarifying that. There are, however, some elements within the new Russian Orthodox Church which are evangelical. There are also new evangelical churches within Russia, and the Catholic Church within Russia is resurgent. Our friends from the LDS are deep into Russia now. And so I, if religious liberty holds in Russia, it will be a very good thing. They've never had it before. And so 
if the if that remains, if Putin allows that to prosper, that will be a very good thing for Russia. I think we have time only for these two questions, just a few minutes. Uh, so who was next? Yes, sir. Well, I enjoyed your talk very much, and I have uh, one question. But, uh, you've won the uh, Pulitzer Prize and the uh, MacArthur Prize, so Nobel Prize is left to no, give I you. No, I haven't. Well, no, someone told you wrong. I haven't won either of those. I'm just teasing you. Oh, good. I won the eighth grade spelling contest. Good. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. The question I have is, uh, I took down notes uh, as a second volume to your book, but how come you never mentioned, or if you did, it passed my head, how come you never mentioned the relationship between love and happiness? Or maybe there is none. There is in the chapter on family quite a lot about love. And, uh, but it is, it is, again, not intended to be the higher... This is a practical book, and you can't teach someone to love someone. Uh, you, you, that, that you can fake it, and you can certainly remove obstacles to love. And I, there's a chapter on God whose love is presumed to be that which holds the universe together. But I, books about love, A, they're, they're not me. Uh, I, I, I don't talk to people about it. In fact, the Irish Catholic in me is making me very nervous right now. But um, <laughs> yeah, Windows down. One of the reasons I like the Presbyterians is the church in which I'm least likely to be hugged. You know, that, that's a... <laughs> recognition laugh um, but there isn't much about love in there it is it is crucial and I don't know that anyone will be happy without love but it's it's reflected in chapters for example on friends um, in Montaigne's 26 essay on friendship it's really an essay on love between friends but you talk about friendship so it's not explicit it's implicit do you ever define what love is no uh, <laughs> I can give you the movie with uh, love. <laughs> love be, is, is that what it is? Love actually? Yeah. There you go. It's kind of covered. Thank, uh, you. Thank you. Yes. Go ahead, Colonel. And this is the last question. And I want to bring up love after this question. He was a guest I, on my show when he was deployed in Ramadi. He called in from Ramadi twice. Yep. Anyway, just two quick comments. One, I want to see how much I've enjoyed the Hillsdale Dialogues. Thank you. I look forward to Mary Friday. And number two... Our host alluded to the fact, uh, George Bush, one of the things I was most disappointed with as a Marine sitting in Ramadi, Iraq, is why he would not defend the war more vigorously. You know, he just let things go. And it just drove me nuts along with my fellow Marines. Uh, a couple of quick Bush comments. The former president had talk show hosts into his office on two occasions that I was president, 2007, August 1, and on the last Wednesday of his um, presidency. Both times he spoke about the war at great length. And he talked about the difficulty of communicating about the war. The second time he brought us back on the last Wednesday of his presidency to ask us to go easy on his successor, which I find to be a very revealing thing. It's a very difficult job. He will grow in the job. You've got to give him a chance. Lots of people want to kill us every day, and it's a very hard How job How many years did he say to give him? <laughs> Whatever it was, I'm done. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but he also talked about the difficulty of communicating about the war. And it's very crystal in my mind, because he had just finished talking to Prime Minister Maliki, done a conference call with him on August of 2007. We have to talk about the war with two things in mind. Americans are in harm's way, and I don't want to increase the harm that they are subjected to by enraging people. And two, we've got to come out of this war with the governments of Iraq and Afghanistan as disposed to us 
as the governments of Japan and Germany were after their wars. We haven't pulled that off. That was a failure of, of transition and leadership, but I think he felt circumscribed. I think he thought about it every day, Colonel, every day. It's just a very difficult messaging to do in a world that wants to distort everything you have to say. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Um, yeah. I, um, uh, but before we close here, um, I, I want to just pick up on the, the love comment. It's interesting that you said you can't teach people how to love. I, I, would, I would half agree and half disagree in the sense that we define love um, in our culture, of course, as a feeling, you know, and, 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 and clearly in your book and, you know, in, in Scripture, uh, in the Bible, uh, love is defined differently. Um, it's a decision to be selfless, whether you feel like being selfless or not, because you realize you should be selfless. Uh, but, of course, if you are selfless, you get blessed. Uh, and that, you, you talk about that in your book a lot. So in your book, you are teaching people how to love. And I want to close by asking you to reprise uh, the little bit about gift giving. I just thought this is so, it's kind of, it's one of the few things in the book where you really um, say something just incredibly specific. Like if you do this, you'll be happy. Uh, there's nothing um, abstract about it. Uh, t- tell us a little bit about your gift giving and the fetching Mrs. Hewitt. Um, I'm a terrible giver of gifts. Uh, I, uh, I try and make up there in volume what I lack in taste. And I, I, I will volley. That's I will a lot av- of volume. I, I will avalanche gifts, and they all go back. Uh, <laughs> that's why Nordstrom is so important to my marriage, because Nordstrom will take anything back at any time. So if I bat 200, uh, I'm doing really well on a Christmas morning. But early on, I realized that it did not matter, provided you were in the business of marking the occasion and you gave something, that if you were, if you were just present in the gift giving, and my wife is a year-round Christmas tree, uh, uh, Sue and Jamie have known her uh, almost as long as I have, actually, and she, they will attest to this, and it's just wonderful to have a generous-minded person, but the recognition and the giving of gifts, both real and concrete and emotional and, and um, uh, spiritual, is what defines love. I guess it's that. It really does. If you're in a loving relationship, you will be giving gifts to each other. I'm not sure that's the anecdote you have, but I want to close with one other one. That is, yeah. Um, For the language, for people who talk about love, find a surrogate. Right now, in uh, we have some friends down from Philadelphia. They have Archbishop Chaput. Is their archbishop? He is moving to Rome. Huh? He's moving to Rome. Well, not all full-time. No? He he got appointed to the the Curial Council on the laity. Just means he's got a lot of playing time ahead of him. But he is... Like Francis and like um, so many of the new bishops, they are so much better. Uh, you know, God loved the bishops of the 1980s, but they would send us the most inane letters at the White House. One of them was signed by Jim Walsh, who was the man who confirmed me. And he couldn't spell nuclear like I can't pronounce nuclear. He had no idea what he was writing about. The new bishops that John Paul II and Benedict appointed in the United States of America, your bishop here, your cardinal here, Dolan, and uh, Archbishop Chaput, and Archbishop Gomez in Los Angeles. And there's a bench in America of Catholic bishops who are um, uh, mirrored on the evangelical side by people like Tim Keller and and, uh, Rick Warren and extraordinary lighthouse figures, like we have lighthouse institutions. King's College is a lighthouse institution. Hillsdale is a lighthouse institution. Wheaton, 
Westmont, Biola, Colorado Christian University, Houston uh, Baptist. We have lighthouses going up all over the place that are extraordinary good developments. And so I, I, if, if you're thinking pessimistically about Souls and Eats and what, who knew we were going to go there tonight? Um, we didn't have any of that in 1982. It was, we had the Committee for the Present Danger, uh, about a dozen intellectuals mostly rooted it here in New York, and that was it. All of the faculties were gone. All of the universities were, uh, were giving up. They didn't see it. They were talking about global cooling. They were talking about uh, moral equivalence. They didn't want to deploy the SS-20s. And now we're turning out this generation of people that are, they're just unique. They're very, very unique. And I think uh, whoever is your successor in interest 30 years from now will be talking about the years 2016 to the turn of the century or maybe to 2025 as being a renaissance in American exceptionalism. So, well, what I think. Uh, yes. That's uh, wonderful. Wonderful way uh, to end, Hugh. I want to, again, very heartily recommend this book. Uh, Hugh will be signing the book. If you didn't get a chance to ask him a question, please don't ask the question in the line because we want to get everybody to to have a chance to get a book signed. But uh, please um, come back. Uh, If you're not getting our emails um, online, please sign up. I keep hearing that endlessly, that people don't get the emails. Uh, It's tough to communicate. We try Uh, We're not sure when we're having our next event, but please stay in touch with us. Watch the videos. This will be up as soon as we can get it up. And join me again, not just in wishing a happy birthday, but in a hearty round of applause to thank my guest, Hugh Hewitt. Thank you.